Welcome to the Not Old Better Show Inside Science Author Interviewed Series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and today's show is brought to you by Palm Wonderful. Check out why Palm Wonderful is called the science antioxidant superpower. We have a special program today about koalas. Yep, I said that. Koalas. Koalas are cute and cuddly, but they have razor claws. Koalas are the million-dollar babies. They raise more funds than any other species in the world, but they are endangered like so many animals today. And yet, in some places on Earth, they thrive. We'll talk more about koalas and their amazing qualities and their many contradictions in just a bit. Thank you so much for listening today. We have got a great guest in Dr. Danielle Claude, who after reading her new book, Koalas, A Natural History and an Uncertain Future, I've been looking forward to speaking with her for a while, whom I will introduce in just a bit. But quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 692nd episode when I spoke to author Joe Hart about his new book, Take Command. Find your inner strength, build enduring relationships, and live the life you want. Two weeks ago, I spoke with Smithsonian associate Rick Steves about his new book, Italy is for Food Lovers. Wonderful subjects for our Not Old Better show audience. If you missed those shows, along with any others, you can go back and check them out, along with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. The story of the koala has taken our guest today, Dr. Danielle Claude, all over the world across continents and cultures into the distant past and through an incredibly wide range of knowledge systems, botany, ecology, indigenous knowledge, evolution, paleontology, anatomy, conservation, biology, history, toxicology, psychology, veterinary and nutritional science and animal behavior. That's a lot. Dr. Danielle Claude studied politics and psychology at the University of Adelaide before completing her PhD in zoology as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University. Dr. Claude worked as a zookeeper before completing her doctorate in zoology at Oxford University, studying seabirds and feral mink in the outer Hebrides Islands of Scotland. We'll hear today from Dr. Claude about koala habits, their history, changing habitats and their joy in being themselves sleeping and eating. A cool breeze ruffled the koala's fur, causing her to stir in her sleep. With her head tucked into her chest, she was barely visible in the waning light, a grey mass wedged in the fork of a tree. Her large ears rotated slowly, scanning the surroundings. She lifted her head, her eyes still closed, breathed in the dampening night air, and let the sounds and smells of evening wash over her. She could hear the creek burbling below and the rhythmic nightly chorus of crickets. The frenetic noise of the day had subsided. Most of the birds had already retired to their roosts, save a lone gang-gang cockatoo, its low creaking cry echoing across the valley as it flew past in search of its family. Sleep beckoned. It was too soon to feed. The trees still hummed from the energy of the departed sun. It would be some hours before they drifted into their nightly cycle of respiration, when their defences dwindled and their leaves were at their most succulent and tasty. Even so, it was time to move. The trees here were redolent with the scent of other koalas and their leaves already heavily browsed. She stretched a leg, 
scratched behind her ear before moving down the trunk of the tree with sudden swiftness. She dropped with a crunch onto the shredded piles of dried bark and headed off on a path she had not taken before. Each night took her on a new route. Each trail was unfamiliar, filled with hazards and perils. Sometimes her course took her through patches of heath, over rocks, across creeks and clearings, or into pockets of forests. But every night, long before dawn, she'd stop and sit on her haunches and then return to the trees she had left. These treks were not long, but they were tiring and did not give her much time to eat when she returned. Sometimes she was forced to eat during the day when the leaves were sharp and bitter, but she had no choice. She had to continue. That, of course, is our guest today, Dr. Danielle Claude, reading from her new book, Koalas, A Natural History and an Uncertain Future. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show Inside Science interview series on radio and podcast, Dr. Danielle Claude. Dr. Danielle Claude, welcome to the program. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for reading. <laughs> well, I, you know, I... I just I want to greet you formally because this is just such a lovely book. But the book is is just so lovely too, and and informal in a lot of ways. And I'm looking at the cover. Thank you for sharing it with me. It's just got these this wonderful picture of these two adorable koalas. And I know as author, you you may not have picked that picture, although although you you might have. But um, I'm going to sh- make sure and share this with our audience because. I just can't get enough of looking at these two icons of the animal kingdom. They raise a lot of money for animal causes. Your book is brilliantly researched. Um, congratulations on all of this. But tell us a little bit about the koala and what's behind that sweet face. What what don't we know? Yeah, I think it's it's sometimes a little hard to go past the sweet face. I think because because they're such an endearing mm-hmm, animal mm-hmm. and they they they're really terribly cute, you know, and, and I think that's sort of <laughs> they are reaction to them. They just they look gorgeous and cuddly, and they've got that lovely lovely sweet face. Um, but I think that the the complexity of the koalas is is actually a really unexpected part of of. Their biology. I didn't expect them to be anywhere near as complicated as they are. Um, so, trying to tap into tap into that and understand where they came from, why they are the way they are, what is the secret of their success, how have they done so well in a forest that is not very um, amenable to being eaten by mammals, um, and and what their fate holds and why they're so variable. There's so many questions I had about koalas when I started this book. So it's it's been a great experience for me to find out some of the answers. Well, again, congratulations. And and I hope we're gonna we're gonna dive into to some of those answers too, because I I, I can only imagine why you chose to write about this subject again. They they just are adorable. Interestingly though, there are an awful lot of animals to write about. There are an awful lot of animals that are bordering on extinction, uh, that are extinct. The koala is threatened with extinction in some places, but other places in the world, they experience overpopulation. They are complicated. If you had to pick one answer for, for choosing to write this book, what what is that? <laughs> I think that's 
one of the that's one of the big questions for me is um, that you know we hear all this, this news about them going extinct on the east coast of Australia, and now I live on the south coast of Australia, and I'm surrounded by koalas. So, um, you know, they're not a, a common species in that you don't get great herds of them or anything, but um, they're certainly not infrequent. They're, they're quite abundant here, and that's a great mystery to me. I was, I've always been curious: why are they doing badly in one part of the country and doing so well in another? Um, as a biologist, of course, I realise that koalas are far from being the most endangered species in the world, but um, but I think the speed of their decline on the East Coast in recent years has been a worry, and the fact that we have known they've needed some protection for a long time and nothing seems to have changed, nothing seems to have fixed that decline. So, so I guess it's those sort of... They're the warning signs we have that things are going quite wrong um, and that we need to, to pay more attention to what's going on. Um, the, ko the koalas, I think, are, are the canaries of the eucalypt forests. So if they're not doing well, then everything else is struggling as well. Um, so so that's, that's the main focus of, of why I guess we focus on koalas. Um, they do attract a lot of attention and, and they're the flagship species for a whole lot of other species. We all know throughout the world of the the wildfires that took place in Australia that had to have impacted the population is is it is it more environmental is it because the koalas are just difficult animals to support do they need human intervention yeah they probably need less human intervention to be honest um i think the problem is that we're still clearing forests on the east coast we're still logging native forests on the east coast and that's the thing that's having the biggest impact on the koalas if they're left alone in a healthy eucalypt forest they'll do quite well um, and they can probably cope with um the, the disease burden or predators or um um, you know, bushfires. Even they 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 can manage those things in a in an undamaged environment. But the trouble is that they're living in a very fragmented forest um, that's often degraded and has other problems. We've got climate change adding to that complexity. So under under those circumstances, they they are struggling, and and that's why bushfires have such a big impact on them. Traditionally, historically, bushfires in Australia have tended to burn small areas um, of a large forest estate, whereas now we're seeing them burn larger areas of a small fragmented forest estate. So there's no there's no population of koalas to repopulate burnt out areas, there's, and there's nowhere else for, for koalas to go um, when the forests are burned. So it's that fragmentation and habitat loss that's causing the major problem. Do they? Because they do just have this absolutely lovely, um, this 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 lovely expression, and and so gentle looking, and the book is very tender and sweet about koalas. I wonder if the sweet face that we see does that hide a, a brain that is um, is powerful amongst the animal kingdom, or is it is it one that um, is not quite as intelligent as maybe some other animals? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because uh, it's very common for people to to say that koalas are stupid, um, but it's also very common for people to say marsupials are stupid. So, um, and you know, marsupials ha are very they're the, they're a very abundant type of animal that we have in Australia that's not found as frequently elsewhere. They're also in South America, and the opossum is the is the best known um, marsupial. 
But um, I think that's a little bit of a, a historical anomaly to, to think that animals that are different from the northern hemisphere species um, are not as good. Um, and so we have that sort of heritage of saying marsupials are less intelligent. I don't think that that's true. And in the case of the koala, it, it's an average animal. <laughs> it's, it's not exceptionally bright. It's not exceptionally stupid. It's got a standard-sized brain for its size. Um, there was a, a story in the scientific literature that they had small brains that rattled around in their skull. That seems to have occurred because they were looking at pickled brains, which shrink. Um, if you look at now we've done MRIs and things of living koala brains and they're perfectly full size and take up their whole skull. So so there's a lot of myths around koalas um, and a lot of that related to their eucalypt diet. They were said to have small brains because they ate toxic leaves, but that, that, that doesn't seem to be the case. Hey, it's Paul. We'll be right back with our guests, but I want to take a moment and mention our generous sponsor, Palm Wonderful. You know, all of us in the Not Old Better Show audience know full well that the first step in taking care of your body and mind begins with eating and drinking right every day. And what better way to get your daily fill of antioxidant goodness than with delicious Palm Wonderful 100% pomegranate juice. With 700 milligrams of polyphenol antioxidants in every serving, this 100% juice from whole-pressed pomegranates helps protect your body against harmful free radicals. Palm contains no added sugars, preservatives, or fillers. It truly is health in a bottle. Drink it daily, feel it forever. We have been drinking Palm Wonderful 100% pomegranate juice in our house for a while. And for Thanksgiving, my wife made the palm salsa recipe instead of traditional cranberry jelly. Wow. We used palm juice and palm fresh fruit, and it was amazing, just delicious. It's now our go-to palm salsa. To find delicious recipes and learn more about the antioxidant goodness of palm, visit palmwonderful.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with award-winning author and biologist, Dr. Danielle Claude. Dr. Danielle Claude has written a wonderful new book entitled Koala, A Natural History and an Uncertain Future. Dr. Claude, the book is getting rave reviews online. I, I love this one quote from um, ABC News, uh, Robin Williams, who says, one of the finest writers on natural history. I have enjoyed reading Dr. Danielle Claude's work. I thought that was fantastic. I think that says a lot about the book and a lot about your writing. I, I just can't recommend this book enough to our audience. I, I think we'll learn so much. You you refer to the myths of koalas, and let, let's talk about some of those. Tell us, besides intellect, what, what are some of the other myths and scientific insights about koalas that, that you discovered in your research for this book? Because again, the research is is amazing. Uh, thank you. Yes, they did turn out, they were a lot more complicated than I expected, as I said. Um, I think, you know, the other myth, it, it does, a lot of it does revolve around their, their diet um, and eating eucalypt leaves. So, so it's often thought that koalas have to sleep a lot because they, um, they eat to toxic eucalypt leaves and this somehow, you know, some, some, it's very common for people to think that they're, they're, drugged out on toxins so so they're they're stoned um mm. 
in the trees. Mm-hmm. And th- that's not the mm-hmm. case. If you actually, if you do happen to disturb a sleeping koala, you'll find that it's perfectly alert and probably not very happy with you. So, um, yeah, they're, they're definitely not not having that problem. The the reason they sleep a lot, and they do sleep an awful lot, they they can, you know, they sleep for up to 95% of the time. So the chances of seeing an active koala are pretty slight. Um, but they sleep a lot because they can. You know, we don't think that um, cats or dogs are stoned or or not very bright because they're sleeping all the time. They they just they just can. They they're just very they're very chill. They don't need to be running around all the time. Koalas are quite relatively safe when they're up in a tree sitting still. So that's their safety position. And while they're asleep, they are digesting their dinner. Um, so they don't really need to be moving around. They don't need to be on the alert for predators the way a sheep or a goat or an antelope has to be. Um, because there aren't so many predators up in the trees and they've got all their food around them. So I really think they live a pretty, pretty nice life up there in the trees, <laughs> surrounded by their dinner. <laughs> One of the other things I read in the book that I that I thought was interesting is that koalas are notoriously fussy about their food. Tell us a little bit about that. Is that is that a myth or is that accurate too? Yeah. No, no, that is absolutely accurate. Yeah. They are incredibly about their food and the other thing is that that obviously koalas have a good idea of what the right leaves are for them but it's hard for us to tell what the right leaves are so <clears throat> they're they're adapted to individual species of eucalypts we tend to think of all eucalypts as being the same thing but there's actually almost 900 species of eucalypts in australia so there's a and they're all different in terms of their nutritional profile and toxicity profile so koalas need to be aware of that there's about 70 species that koalas are known to eat Um, but any individual koala will only probably eat four or five species maybe up to 10 depending on the area they're in and they'll only eat particular it's not just the species it's particular trees they prefer individual trees from the same species so some are some they like better than others and that probably depends on where they grow um, and what kind of nutrients they're getting from the soil and the water and then they also seem to be particular about when they eat them and which leaves on the tree so (laughs) so yeah they're very very particular Um, and sometimes a tree that you've been feeding them for quite some time um, they'll suddenly decide they don't want that one anymore they want something else I I mentioned earlier that they uh, that koalas raise more funds than any other species in the world. <coughs> koalas themselves are very expensive <laughs> and and difficult animals uh, to provide upkeep for uh, as as captives. Mm. Uh, certainly, when they're away from their home forests, why is that? Why why are koalas so much more expensive than than other animals to uh, to keep in in captivity? Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing because I used to work as a zookeeper, and the koalas are really mm-hmm. easy. I read that. <laughs> yeah, they're they're really <laughs> maintenance animals as far as a zookeeper is concerned. But you have to have a really vast forest to support them. So we find at San Diego Zoo they have they have huge eucalypt forests that they grow and farm purely to provide food for the koalas, and that's because they need this great diversity of trees, and because you can't predict um which ones they're going to want to eat at any particular time so it's it's quite a a wasteful process i suppose 
when we think about most animals we keep in captivity, we like to feed them pellets. You know, <laughs> that's what most herbivores eat. And koalas just will not survive on pellets. They, they will die if they're fed food like that. So they have to have fresh leaves. They have to have leaves that, are, you know, they usually need to be cut in the morning. They, they've got to be eaten pretty much straight away. So their requirement for fresh food is really, really high and specific food. So it's purely their food that makes them expensive. And, of course, if you don't have eucalypt forests, that makes it even harder. So that's why they've been difficult to establish in colonies overseas. And in their own forests, they need a big area as well. So we generally regard a, a healthy population as no more than three to four koalas per hectare. And in some of the arid forests, there might only be one koala per 100 hectares. So huge areas that they need to survive. And so you mentioned the San Diego Zoo and and wild animal park there in San Diego, California. I imagine that climate is really suited for them. And it seems like the eucalyptus probably even grow quite naturally there. And uh, and I imagine that, you know, just given the habitat that they require based on, um, you know, the geography and being able to spread out a little bit, that San Diego climate probably is a good thing for them. Are there other places in the world where these kinds of zoos just really make sense for the koalas? Yeah, I think that is why San Diego was one of the earliest zoos to establish a successful breeding colony of koalas, and that, and it's because the eucalypts had already colonized that area. So eucalyptus trees had been brought to um, that area a lot earlier during the gold rush um, and and had become widespread as street trees and windbreaks and on farms and things like that. So so they already had the the food was there um, as a starting point, and and it's a good climate for eucalypts, and that's what makes it a good climate for koalas. Um, they have been established elsewhere in in Japan. They also grow eucalypts there, um, and they have started growing eucalypts in the UK. Um, and eucalypts are one of the most widespread. Um, trees that have been established elsewhere. So eucalypts are actually a really successful export of Australia. Um, uh, so so there are a lot of – but the, the, the range of species is a bit more variable, so you have to have the right types of eucalypts for the koalas. I think we're all worried about climate change, and I, I think it's impacting so many uh, – of us as humans, as well as animals. What about koalas? How are they impacted? Are they surviving and thriving? Are they really um, suffering? Where do things stand? Yeah, well, there's a number of factors in that, I guess, in climate change, you know, because the the impacts are variable. Um, Obviously, increased drought is always a problem in Australia, being a quite arid country and um, becoming more, over the history of koala's long evolutionary history we've become more arid so so that's that's something that they've adapted to but um it's also a problem in terms of increased bushfire risk because we now have more frequent and more severe bushfires than we have had in the past due to those rising temperatures and increased drought but the other factor that's a bit of a, a a um we don't really know what the impact's going to be, is whether that will change the, the toxicity and nutrition levels in the trees themselves. And that could be absolutely fatal for koalas if they're already walking a very tight um, line in terms of getting enough nutrition from the trees and being able to deal with toxins that are in them. If that 
balance shifts that could cause problems for them longer term. And we just don't know how that's going to pan out. I, I really want you to talk a little bit about wombats and koalas because <laughs> wombats are <laughs> so close. And I think wombats are another one of those animals that we, you know, we love to learn about. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about the koala's origin and, and where koalas come from, particularly in relation to wombats. Sure. So wombats and koalas are are the closest living relatives to each other. So they're the last survivors of a of a really grand lineage of animals um, that used to include Australia's megafauna, or some of uh, Australia's megafauna, which the biggest megafauna we had were the protodons, which were basically, if you can imagine, we, it's really hard to imagine, but a, that is hard a to two imagine. or three ton <laughs> wombat. <laughs> the protodons are not. A, yeah, yeah. They're, so they're about the size of a small four wheel drive car. So that's what we used to have in Australia. You know, we didn't have giant woolly mammoths or anything like that, or mastodons. We we had these giant um, grazing diprotodons. So. But, of course, we've lost a lot of that family. Most of it's died out and we've just been left with the wombats and the koalas. And, you know, they do, they're do. they sort of superficially similar, but they're, they're actually quite distant relatives. Um, you know, neither of them have tails. They're, they're both sort of small, solid animals. Wombats are much more solid. They're a bit more, you know, I always think they're a bit like a padded <laughs> brick. Um, they're, they're very sturdy. Um, and and can be quite aggressive as well, which which is interesting. That they they've got a um, they've both got reinforced rumps, which is which is quite an interesting feature. So they've got an arm and plated butt, as it were, mm-hmm. um, which is which is a very distinctive characteristic. Koalas use it predominantly to sit on. Um, wombats actually will use it as an offensive weapon. So they go down their burrow, and if anything tries to get in behind them, they will push their legs up and, and crush the the animal coming behind them um, against the roof of the burrow. So um, it's quite an unusual technique, but um, there we are. It seems to work for them. <laughs> Dr. Daniel Claude, thanks so much for joining us today. I really just have one more question that I know our audience is always interested in this, and that is because you kind of refer to this idea of human intervention in, in koala preservation. Is there something that we can do or do better or more of or less of? Tell us what we need to know in order to kind of help you and help koalas to uh, to thrive and to to not not grow extinct. Yeah, look, I mean, it's it's interesting. There's there's been um, yeah, obviously koalas raise a lot of a lot of money, um, and I think that the prime priority for that funding is really. Um, habitat protection and investing in in reserves and protecting the forests because that's really what they need and putting pressure on um, governments really to restrict the level of extraction coming out of forests you know we st- we still have native forest logging which is is really should be stopped. Um, it's not a viable industry anymore. We need to move on to plantations. So those sorts of things are important. But um, keeping up the awareness, I think, that the, the forests are vital for so many different species um, and they're, they're unique places that need to be protected. Um, and also research into diseases is obviously another shorter-term helpful thing for the koalas because they're really struggling with their disease burden. Dr. Daniel Claude, thank you so much for your time. This this book is fantastic. It's entitled Koala 
and Natural History in an Uncertain Future. We will put links so that our audience can find out more about Dr. Danielle Claude, her website, which is danielleclode.com, all the resources that are available there, as well as additional information about Dr. Claude and, and her work on behalf of koalas, all her other great writing, too. But Dr. Danielle Claude, thanks for being so generous with your time, for writing this wonderful book. Again, congratulations. But thank you for all that you're doing, too, to support nature. We, we certainly appreciate that. We wish you the best. Happy New Year to you and yours. And um, please come back and join us again as you, as you write further. I'd love to do that. Thank you for having me. My thanks to Palm Wonderful called the Science Antioxidant Superpower for sponsoring today's show. My thanks to Dr. Danielle Claude for her time, expertise, and willingness to read from her new book, Koalas, A Natural History in an Uncertain Future. Dr. Claude's book is available on Apple Books. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful, nuddled, better show audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well. And be safe, which I'm mentioning in every show because I want to bring attention to the issue of assault rifles, which aren't safe in anyone's hands but the military and law enforcement. Assault rifles are killing our children and grandchildren in the very places they learn, schools. Please, let's work together to eliminate assault rifles and let's do better. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show Inside Science interview series on radio and podcast. Thanks, everybody, and we will see you next time.